What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Have you ever heard that phrase, that's the worst? How many of you ever said that before? That's the worst. You know, recently, uh, this is not a commercial to join the bank I bank with, by the way. This is not a commercial. In fact, after I share this with you, you probably won't want to join this bank. Anyways, um, I, I used to bank with BB&T, and you know how BB&T and SunTrust merged, and now it's called Truist, right? Well, I, I went one day to the Chaparral location, and I went through the drive through and sure enough, it was closed. And then I, the only other location I had in my mind, I, I went to Towers, Towers, and uh, they, they were closed, and it had a sign, go to the SunTrust on Ogden. So I go there, and I sit in line for like two hours, and I literally thought to myself, that's the worst. <laughs> you know, I, I know that I have an obsession, um, maybe even an, addi- an addiction to Chipotle. I know, I do, but if you haven't tried the one in Sangwood, you really ought to go. But like the, the second time I went to the new location, I went and I got my regular order. And honestly, the only reason why I go there is because of the guacamole. It is so good. I got my rice, I got my beans, I got my meat, and I, I got my vegetables, and I asked for guac. And guess what? They were out of guacamole. <laughs> and I sat down and I ate my meal. And as I was eating this meal, I know I should be thankful. I know I should, I know. You can preach to me after the service. But I literally sat there in Chipotle and I thought to myself, this is the worst. (laughs) This is the worst. I got my food I want without my guacamole. (laughs) Hands down, as we enter this scene of the life of Christ, this was his worst day, but actually it was also the best day. The day that Jesus was betrayed and arrested just so happened to be, yeah, the worst day, but also the best day for for several reasons. It was the worst day because when, when Jesus was betrayed by a kiss in the garden, we realized that the depravity and the sinfulness of man was highlighted in such a degree that man was willing to trade 30 pieces of silver. For the Son of God, King of Kings. But it was the best day because it highlighted the sovereignty of God. Because without Jesus being arrested and betrayed here in Matthew chapter 26, as we'll read about and we'll study, we will see that that the sins that we've committed would never have been nailed to the cross of Calvary. And so today, we can look in this scene of the life of Christ, and we can literally say, yes, that was the worst, but we can also say, yes, that was the best. Today, the title of my sermon is The Betrayal and Arrest of the Messiah. The Betrayal and Arrest of the Messiah. 
As I've shared with you, within this series, we are kind of highlighting a, a mini-series on the death of Jesus Christ. Just walking through Matthew 26 and Matthew 27, there are 25 scenes surrounding the death of Christ. Going from the plot to assassinate him, if you will, to the very burial and placing him in the tomb. And today we're going to look at the next five scenes but the key thought that I have as we're going to look in these five different messages, these 25 different scenes, is this. The vicarious death of Christ means Jesus suffered on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity once and for all. Vicarious is a theological term, and all it means is to take the place of another for the benefit of the other. So when Jesus died on that cross, my friends, he died in our place so that we could benefit of his grace. Now, the key thought I have for today's message is this. The day Jesus was arrested was the day death was defeated. The day Jesus was arrested was the day death was defeated. Yes, it was the worst day, but also at the same time, it was the best day. Because if Jesus was never taken in chains and in bonds and, sta- and stood before Pilate and stood before the Sanhedrin and nailed to that old rugged cross, my, my friends, our sins would not have been paid in full. So what does the Bible teach about his death? Well, today I want to remind you that Matthew's gospel is not the only gospel that was written. For them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you study these scenes here, I believe Matthew kind of highlights the vast majority of them and elaborates the most on them. But there are times when other gospels mention scenes that Matthew's gospel does not mention. So before we dive into verse 31, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to look at the first scene of today's five scenes about this section of the death of Christ. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, down to verse 30. This has been called the dispute about greatness. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. The Bible says, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. Let's pause right there. This is the dispute about who is the greatest. Mankind surely hasn't changed throughout the years. We've tried to figure out who is the greatest. I don't know if you watch college basketball, but coming up is March Madness, and hopefully they'll get to have it this year. But what I realized is there is a rivalry that is greater than any other college basketball rivalry, and it's in North Carolina. It's between the Duke Blue Devils versus the North Carolina Tar Heels. And it has been labeled as the greatest rivalry in college basketball. One person said, It's impossible to even say their names without hearing the over-exuberant voice of announcer Dick Vitale, who talks who chalks up the magic of this rivalry to three Ps. The first P, he says, is proximity. It's interesting, if you ever go to this section of North Carolina, you realize that they are just a few miles apart. The two famous home courts are only but a short drive from each other down, uh, interestingly enough, Tobacco Road in North Carolina. The second P, he says, is not just proximity, but power. He says this neighborhood 
tug of war became a national obsession because both teams are always so ridiculously good. Listen to this. I mean, just think about this. Every Final Four, if you're not into basketball, just hear me out, okay? Every Final Four from 1988 to 2001, except one included Duke or UNC. In every NCAA tournament since 2004, except one, either the Blue Devils or the Tar Heels have been a number one or a number two seed. The three, the three P, he says, is passion. Not just proximity, not just power, but passion. Because you are either a Duke fan or a UNC fan. You cannot be both. You either bleed dark blue or light blue, <laughs> one or the other. I say that to say this, that the Bible tells us here in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and verse number four, when the Bible says, it says that, that there was a strife among them. This was a type of contention. And it says, which of them should be accounted the greatest? This, this idea here in this verse gives this idea that, that this strife was a result of the rivalry between these apostles of who was the greatest. Much hasn't changed since that day. Oh, Who's the greatest pastor? Oh, who's going to preach the greatest sermon? Oh, who's the greatest worship leader? Who's the greatest songwriter? Who's the greatest musician? Who's the greatest Sunday school teacher? Who's the greatest greeter? Who's the greatest this? Who's the greatest that? As I've been reading in this passage about the dispute about the greatness, I realize that I am like these disciples when I think that I am greater than what I actually am. Because in reality, I, I'm reminded of what Paul said. He said, there is no good thing in me. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. He said that he is what he is by the grace of God. As I read this passage, I love Jesus' response. In verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. Verse 26 says, but you shall not be so. Listen to this. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. Remember in, in the, the day in which Jesus was alive, the younger sibling wasn't as great as the oldest sibling. The younger brother wasn't as great as the oldest brother. The younger sister wasn't as great as the eldest sister. And he says, he that is chief among you, let him serve. He says in verse 27, For whether is greater he that sits at meat or he that serves? Is not he that sits at meat? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serves. Jesus could have easily fed these people again with just a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread. But here he speaks about how he is just a humble servant and the least is, in God's eyes, the greatest. In our culture, we're so consumed with the concept of how many followers do we have on social media? Who are we influencing? We all influence somebody. Whether it's just your immediate family, or whether it's a, an entire church body, or whether it's a whole community, or whether it's an entire nation, or really the entire world, whatever level of influence God has given you, use it and point them to the greatest figure of all time. Not yourself, not me, not any of us, but Jesus. He is the greatest. I think today as we look at this scene, 
in the context of the death of Christ. Here Jesus is on his way to Calvary and the disciples are debating and having contention about who's greater. Really, guys? I'm, I'm reminded about how so many times in our churches, sometimes here, sometimes in the Roanoke Valley, sometimes everywhere else, that we get in all these crazy debates that don't amount to a hill of beans. Doesn't mean anything concerning eternity. So let's keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is the focus when we gather. Jesus is the theme of our worship. And Jesus is the theme of our message. Why? Because he is the greatest. And nobody compares to him. He goes on to say in verse 29, I appoint you unto, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father has appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Can you imagine? God is going to allow us to sit down. I'm reminded of the marriage supper of the lamb here in verse 30, how we will sit at his table, not our table, but at his table, and he will allow us to eat his meal. And then he says, and then these individuals will sit down on thrones judging the 12 throne, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the first scene today. This is leading up to his arrest and betrayal. But remember, the day Jesus was arrested was the day death was defeated. Let's look at the second scene today. And this takes us back to Matthew chapter 26 and verses 31 through 35. This scene has been called Peter's denial that was foretold. And we've read it just a few moments ago. And here Jesus says in verse 31 that all will be offended because of him that very night. And notice he begins to quote scripture. In verse 31, he's quoting, in fact, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number 7. And, and listen, this had to take place because it was within the sovereignty of God. The prophet Zechariah proclaimed a message that the shepherd will be smitten. And the shepherd would give his life for the flock or the sheep. And here Jesus quotes it. And then he says in verse 32, but listen, this, verse 32 is the good news. Even though Jesus dies, we know that's not the end of the story. Verse 32, the Bible says that he will rise again. And we'll read about that in chapter 28. That after Jesus was placed in that borrowed tomb, Jesus will give victory over death, hell, and the grave. But in the midst of this conversation about Jesus' death and his resurrection, Peter says, Though every man, woman, boy, or girl will deny you, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says, Verily, I, I'm... He says, truly, of a very affirmed fact, this very night, you're going to deny me three times before you hear that rooster crow. And Peter said, I, no, Lord, I will die with you. I will not deny you. And that's exactly what all the disciples said. As I think about this, I am like Peter when I make promises to God and I don't keep them. I am like Peter when I make promises to God about my Bible reading and I don't keep it. I am like Peter when I make promises to God about my prayer life and I don't fulfill those promises. I am like Peter when I make promises to God that I'm going to share the gospel with the first person I see and I do not do it. My friends, we are like Peter. Every time we deny Christ in our thoughts, 
We are like Peter when we deny Christ with our words, and we are like Peter when we deny Christ with our actions. It's interesting, not all these scenes are recorded by all of the Gospels, but all four Gospels record this scene. It reminds us, from Matthew's perspective, from Mark's perspective, from Luke's perspective, from John's perspective, we're all like Peter. And we have all gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and we need the shepherd to rescue us because we've gone astray. We know later on he will deny him. But I wonder, as we look to the future of our life, we might have denied him at times in our past, but may God help us to not deny him in the future. What does the Bible teach you about? The betrayal and arrest of Christ and his death? Well, it leads up about this conversation with the disciples about who's the greatest. It, it leads up right here about, about Peter's denial that's foretold the very same night. But then, take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 22. There's a scene that's, that's only recorded. That. Now, these, uh, this scene about the disciples being the greatest or who's the greatest and, and, and this other scene about the share with you is exclusively only shared with in Luke's gospel. But it all is in context of, of the arrest and the betrayal of Jesus, of the Messiah. But in Luke chapter 22, and look at verse number 35. In verse 35, now remember, but before, before I, I share this with you, remember back earlier in the Gospels when Jesus sent out his apostles and these disciples, he said, don't take anything with you. Don't take your wallets. Don't take your purses. Don't, ta don't take your coats. Don't take anything with you. But here he says in verse 35, Jesus says in verse 35 of Luke 22, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, Lacked ye anything? In other words, did you have need of anything? And they said nothing. Isn't that amazing? Whatever season we're in, in ministry or life, when God calls us to do something, he will always provide. Whether he says, drop everything that you have and go, or I want you to take a couple years and prepare and go. Whenever it is, God will always provide. But then in verse 36, he says, but now... He that has a purse, let him take it. And likewise his script. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Most likely it's for their protection. And then he says in verse 37, For I say unto you that this that, this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. Here in verse 37, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 53. And if you've ever studied the life of Isaiah, you know he was a mighty preacher and prophet of old. And in Isaiah 53, that is probably, in my mind, the most memorable chapter of the 66 chapters of Isaiah because it is a clear prophetic description of Jesus hanging on the cross. And here Jesus refers to it. And then in verse 38, they respond and say, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. As we think about this purse and this bag and the sword and these shoes, I thought it was interesting that a recent survey finds that the average American woman spends as much as $160 on a handbag or a purse and owns about 11 of them. How about that? Isn't that something? 
<laughs> it was an article in 2014. I got, I, you can fact check me if you like. Businesswire.com. It says, it goes on to say, this article speaks about how 10% of women have more than 20 bags in their closet, and one in five women are actually holding onto their handbags because they've spent so much money on them. <laughs> oh, man. Did you know the average pair of shoes is going to cost you $75? And I've actually seen people wear shoes that cost two, three, four thousand $4,000. Now, I don't own any of those, and if you do, God bless you. Um, but uh, I'm not here to knock you. But, but anyways, I share all this stuff because here, Jesus is saying, hey, take your bags, put on your shoes, and let's go. And grab your sword. I believe this is in the context of a defense mechanism. Not as a means that they're going to go off to war and kill a bunch of people. Not necessarily. I believe that, that here Jesus is calling them to go out and prepare for the battle of the spiritual battle they're fighting. Today as we think about this, we know that God sometimes calls us to drop everything we have and go. And then sometimes he gives us a season of preparation. Kind of like we have a season of preparation to prepare for this vacation Bible school this summer out west. But now, may I draw your attention back to Matthew 26? This is a, a heavyweight scene right here. I love studying the prayers in Scripture. I love reading them. Because I learn how to pray when I read the saints in Scripture when they're praying. But I especially learn how to pray when I read about Jesus's prayer. In Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, we read the prayer of Gethsemane, or the prayer in Gethsemane. That's this scene. We've seen the dispute about the greatness. Peter's denial foretold the purse, bag, and sword. And now we're looking at the prayer in Gethsemane. But remember, the day Jesus was arrested was the day death was defeated. Look at verse 36. The Bible says here in verse 36 that, that Jesus comes with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go and pray. We don't know exactly where this garden was, but if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, they'll take you to a place that they think it might have been this specific area in that region. And it's interesting, if you get to go there and you walk around, it's just surreal. It's just amazing just to think about this could have been the exact place when Jesus spent this time praying with his disciples. But you know the story here that he takes with him, Peter, and to the two sons of Zebedee, and, and they began to be sorrowful and very, very heavy. And the Bible says in verse 38 that, that Jesus looks at him and he says, My soul is exceedingly, exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Tarry here and watch with me. And he goes on a little way and he begins to pray. Now listen to this prayer. In verse 20, uh, 39, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I love this phrase. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In other places, it says, Not my will be done, but your will be done. And here, this gives the idea that when Jesus was praying, he was teaching us how to pray. We pray in accordance to the will of God. Yes, we pray in faith that God is going to answer our prayers. But we also pray in accordance to the will of God. And here, that's what Jesus did. And the Bible says that he comes back to the disciples and he finds them asleep. <laughs> wow, that sounds like you and me. 
I remember I was in Bible college just one time and I heard this powerful sermon of, of this guy preaching in chapel. And, and man, I was going to spend the whole afternoon praying after class. So I, I got out of class at like two o'clock and I went back to my dorm and I found a place uh, that nobody else was. And I, I got my Bible, I had my journal I, I, and I laid down on the ground and I woke up about three hours later. <laughs> man, I feel like the disciples so many times. But that's the scene here. Jesus praying to God in great agony, and his disciples are with them, and their eyes were heavy. And he comes back and he says, couldn't you just watch with me for one hour? You remember the idea of a watcher in the early days of the biblical times? It was somebody who would stand on guard and watch a couple hours throughout the night in case an enemy came to attack them. And that's what Jesus was asking some of them to do. And they were to be praying and, and being watchful, and they were sleeping. That's an awesome guard right there. And he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that is so true. Our spirit is willing to do so many things, but the flesh is so weak and overcomes us sometimes. And then he prays again in verse 42, the second time. Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 43 says he, he came and found them asleep again. Their eyes were heavy. He leaves them goes and prays the third time, saying the exact same words. And he comes back to the disciples and says, Sleep on now. Take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that does betray me. If you know anything about Luke's gospel, we're not going to turn there, but in Luke chapter 22, this scene is recorded and the Bible has a phrase, and it says that it says something to the effect that, that he was in anguish as he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like the drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I'm no doctor, I'm no medical professional, and I'm certainly not a med student, so if I mispronounce this word, please forgive me and don't crucify me. Hematihydrosis is a rare condition in which a human being sweats blood. Leonardo da Vinci describes a soldier who sweated blood before battle. Jesus experienced this while praying in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, and many have talked about this throughout the past. It's interesting that, that when you begin to study this condition, it gives a sense that, that somebody is so consumed with a burden mentally that they can't bear it. And the body's only way to cope with that heavy burden is by sweating drops of blood. Now, it's a rare thing. It doesn't happen very often. But the weight that was on the shoulders of the Messiah that day was a weight that, listen, all of us combined would not even feel. And he experienced that condition. Because he knew the weight that he was going to carry was the sins of humanity. He knew that, that when he was on that cross, as Hebrews writes, and he says that he would taste death for every man. I believe that's why he sweat drops of blood. Now the final scene. We've seen so far... The disciples are having this conversation. Hey, who's greater? Is it you, Peter? Is it, is it, is it me, James? Is it, is it you, John? <laughs> Certainly it's not going to be Judas. <laughs> 
Peter is, is, is told that he's going to deny Christ. He says, grab your purses, grab your bags, and grab your swords. And then there he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And then we see, right as he says these words in verse 46, this scene is called the betrayal and arrest of Christ. And look at verse 47. Literally, while he was speaking those words, Judas, who was one of the twelve, that blows my mind when I read that phrase. The God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, if he had somebody betray him, we should just expect that at some point in our life, somebody might betray us too. And he says, Judas comes, and there was a great multitude who had swords and staves. And they were coming from the chief priests and the elders. Remember, the elders was kind of like this, formed this group called the Sanhedrin. They were the religious Jewish group who just, they were large and in charge. They made all the decisions. And verse 48 says that he, now he that betrayed him, speaking about Judas, gave them a sign saying, whoever I will kiss, that's the one. And hold him fast. And verse 49 says, and forthwith, he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine saying that to the Messiah in the context of knowing after he kisses him, that was a form of greeting in their day, that they were going to come and put him in chains and take him to jail. 30 pieces of silver. If we understand that correctly, it might have been at best up to $500 of money in our day. And a simple kiss. And the Messiah is betrayed. As we think about this scene here, I think about how, no, I'm not Judas. Certainly not. No, I, I didn't live in Jesus' day. I'm not one of the 12 original apostles and disciples. No, I didn't, I didn't bring a group of people with me with swords and, and weapons to come and capture the Messiah. I didn't kiss them on the cheek, but I, I remind you today that I am like Judas every time I sin. Because every single time I sin in th my thought life, or every time I sin in, in the words that come out of my mouth, or every time that I sin in actions that I do, that I am literally betraying the Messiah. And so, no, I am not Judas like that in that way. I betray him in my own way. And before you get on your high horse of spirituality, so do you. And we see that in this scene, one of the people that were with Jesus draws his sword and cuts off a, a, one of the person's ear. And can you imagine Jesus, out of all the miracles that we looked at last time, I, I didn't emphasize this because I knew we were going to get to it, but, but, but this was a group of people that were coming to kill the Messiah. And they, he chops off the, uh, of his ear, and Jesus bends down, picks up the guy's ear that's going to take him before Pilate and throw him on the cross and puts his ear back. Talk about grace. Talk about love. And then, in the midst of all of this, I look at verse 50, and, and, and I see Jesus looks to Judas, and he calls him friend. 
There's a songwriter who, who years ago, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was kind of a more of a modern song, and it said, I am a friend of God. Listen, if Jesus called Judas a friend, I'm pretty sure that every person, man, woman, boy, or girl who's ever lived, ever will live, no matter what continent or country they're in, they are a friend of God because God wants to have a relationship with them. And here, the Bible says that he says in verse 52, put away your sword. This is interesting. He says, all those who kill by the sword will perish by the sword. And this scene leads us up to verse 56. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets, plural, Micah, Malachi, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Remember, he said in verse 31, he quoted Zechariah saying, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. As I was studying this passage, I came across a quote by Billy Graham. And he said, he said this, because I think that this, in a sense, is Jesus was a martyr. There's no question about it. But in regards to persecution, Billy Graham said this, persecution is one of the natural consequences of living the Christian life. It is to the Christian what growing pains are to the growing child. No pain, no development. No suffering, no glory. No struggle, no victory. No persecution, no reward. I close with what Jesus said in one of his sermons in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the Bible says the apostles were praising God because he accounted them worthy to suffer shame for his name. As we think about Jesus' betrayal and his arrest, I really don't know what the future has for us as believers here in America, but there may come a time that we will be betrayed and arrested because of our faith. But keep in mind, the day Jesus was arrested, death was defeated. What's up, guys? Brian here again just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live.
about me I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith Keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith 